Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to finish up chapter 3 in this audio, chapter 3 of John, the first 26 verses of John. We're taken up with the discussion of Jesus and how he personally evangelized Nicodemus and attempted to get Nicodemus to see what it was like to get born again. We're going to move from that story, starting in verse 22 and go through 36, and we will look at the story of how John the Baptist decreased in his ministry and Jesus increased in his ministry. There are no parallels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so we will just We will stay right here in John, and I'm going to splice in a teaching I did in a church in Atlanta covering this passage, and that splice begins now. Steve asked me to teach after his wedding because he was was going to be occupied with his honeymoon, so I said, well, where should I start? He he said we were going through the book of John, and I said, well, where, where have you gotten so I'll know where to pick up? And he said, John 3, verse 22. And so I looked at that and I said, well, Steve, that's where I left off last time I was here. (laughs) He said, well, all I've been doing is fixing my yard up for my wedding. And his yard, it's it's manicured, it's quaffed, it's beautiful. There's not one blade of grass out of place because he was getting ready for the wedding. And, of course, it rained all day and his wedding had to be inside. So... So, so I'm going to pick up right here in verse 22 in John 3 where I left off. Last time you recall, maybe, that John was talking about Jesus doing personal evangelism with Nicodemus. And this is where we're going to pick up. I'm going to take it verse by verse and we'll finish the chapter. Verse 22 in John 3. After these things, and those things were Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he went out of Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now that sounds like he was off on a long, long journey and he arrives in Judea. Actually, he was in Jerusalem with Nicodemus and he went into the countryside of Judea, which is right around this area here. Uh, In fact, the English Standard Version has in the countryside of Judea. So that's a little bit confusing, the Judean countryside. So it's a little bit confusing. And there he was spending time with them, his disciples, and he was baptizing. Now, Jesus wasn't actually baptizing. We look in John 4, verse 2, and it says in parentheses, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were. So what Jesus was doing, he was spending time with his disciples, and he was letting them baptize. Now, this is a good small little point to notice about how you train people in the kingdom of God. You don't do it yourself, necessarily, You let other people do it even though they don't know as much as you and even though they're slower than you and they might make more mistakes than you. That's just good management, really. So, in fact, if you read all the Gospels, you could call it the training of the 12. Somebody wrote a book about that years ago, the training of the 12 by A.B. Bruce. Jesus did everything to train those 12. In fact, at the very end, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration and then right at Passion Week, he was constantly saying, look, they're going to chase you from synagogue to synagogue. Get ready for this. Get ready for this. So he's training them. Then in verse 23 we read, John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem. This is, Salem. this is the Sea of Galilee. This is Salem right here. This is the Jezreel Valley that comes down and it opens up. The mountains here, mountains here. And there was a lot of water around here, it says right here. He was baptizing in Enon near Salem. Salem they know is here. They think Enon is here. The scholars do. Because there was much water there, all right, because there was a reason that John was baptizing. He was baptizing around here, and he had come up to here. 
Why was he baptizing there? Why did he choose that place to baptize? Yeah, why, why do you need a lot of water to baptize? A lot of people, okay, but if, if I, like Ed said, if I, if I just sprinkled you, how much water does that take? Yeah, so what does that, I'm preaching to the choir here. This is a Baptist <laughs> church, right? So, so what does that mean? He went there because there was a lot of water because he needed to put them under the water and bring them back out again in order to immerse them. That's just a theological side point. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I thought I'd mention that. So he was baptizing because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. Now I'll ask you another question. The church had not been founded yet, right? Pentecost had not happened church had not been established, and yet Jesus was baptizing. So is he doing Christian baptism, the type of baptism that we do today? Couldn't be, because it hadn't happened yet. So he was basically doing the same type of baptism that John the Baptist was doing, which is the baptism of repentance, right? He's doing the same thing. Now, when Steve was doing chapter 1, I think it was, he talked about when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, well, that's when the Holy Spirit, like a dove, came on him and the voice came from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The scripture says it was in Bethany beyond the Jordan. And traditionally that was right down here. But now Steve pointed out to me, he'd read a modern co commentary. I read 19th century commentators because they're cheap and they're free on the internet. <laughs> but Steve, he spent money on a D.A. Carson commentary, and a modern one. And he said that now that Bethany behind the Jordan uh, was, they think, is really Bethania, which is the Roman province, which sounds like Bethany, Bethania. And they think that John baptized Jesus up here, in which case John comes down to here to uh, Enon near Salem. And then Jesus came from Bethania down to Jerusalem where he talked to Nicodemus and so forth. And they're doing the same baptism, which is important in just a minute. In verse 24, for John had not been thrown into prison yet. Now, you know how John got thrown into prison. He married his, his, his half-brother, Herod Philip I's wife, Herodias. He divorced his wife. And then Herodias' daughter, Salome, did a sexy dance at a birthday party for Herodias and said, give me John's head on a platter. And you know all that story. And, and he got thrown into jail. And that's important, too, as we see what John says later on in this chapter. Let me give you an overview of what the chapter is about. The overview... I like to say that this last part of John chapter 3 is like the book of Hebrews. It's how Jesus is greater. You know, in Hebrews, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. His tabernacle is better than the, tabernacle, the, the Old Testament tabernacle. Well, this is what John the Baptist is trying to do to show how great Jesus was. But at this time, he's doing the same type of baptism, and people still don't know that he is the Messiah. So John's out. He hadn't been thrown into prison yet. Now let's go to... Verse 25, and I'm going to read 25 and 26 together in John 3. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read those two verses, I said, what do they have to do with each other? They don't seem like they even fit. Say, <laughs> so, a Jew comes up to the disciples and said, I want to talk to you about purification, which to them meant washing with water. The Jews washed themselves with water all the time. John's baptism was a little bit unusual. They didn't really do that. But so they were saying, What's, what are you doing here? And I think that the connection, and this you have to read between the lines here, the reason that as soon as they finished talking with this Jew about purification, they went to their master, John, and said, what's going on here? You know, Jesus is down here. He's, he's baptizing all thousands of people, and we've just got a, dozens. 
He's, he's baptizing a lot more. Why is that? Well, what are the kind of questions that a Jew might ask? Pharisees, you know, they're very technical about things. And I bet they went to him and said, to, to John's disciples and said, you know, Jesus is down there baptizing for repentance. John, you're baptizing for, your master John, the Baptist, he's baptizing for repentance. So what's the difference? Why is he so successful and you're not? Why is your ministry so pitiful and his is so great? You're doing the same thing. Maybe there's something wrong with the way you're doing it. And then maybe the Jews started saying, well, maybe he's asking that you cross your arms when you go under. Maybe you should hold your nose. Or how, how, how deep do you put the baptizee under the water? Or how long do you hold him under water? You know, the Jews love to talk about all these. Te- they're trying to figure out why Jesus is doing so good and John is doing so bad. And the disciples, what do you think the attitude of the disciples were? What do you think they're thinking? Huh? Yes, they're, they're jealous. Their pride, and they're, we were going to be the forerunners. You know, we're preparing the way, baptizing everybody, and now this guy comes along and everybody's going to him. So what are we doing here? What, what's the point? Now, there's something else that might have made the Pharisees a little bit nervous, too. The rabbis had a rule that no disciple could baptize, not baptize, excuse me, could teach within 12 miles of his master. Now, John, the Baptist had said that somebody was coming after him, and he, he was not unfit to tie his shoes and so forth. So people might be, have, these, John's disciples might have started thinking that Jesus is the master. He's the big shot now, and John is not the big shot. And here we are. We're baptizing here, and he's baptizing down here somewhere. That's getting real close to the 12-mile limit. The penalty was death for doing that, by the way. Death. It's kind of like a non-compete clause. You know, you sell a business, you can't compete, you know. (laughs) So they might have been worried about that. But at any rate, they had big questions to ask of Jesus. Now, we'll notice one thing in, in verse 26 They tell John, he, Jesus, is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now, is that literally true? All is in each and every one? Of course not, because we already know that John was baptizing some people up here. The verse says that. He's baptizing up here near Salem. So they're exaggerating. And by the way, the word all, I used to hear people when engaged in theological controversy, they would say, all always means all. And it's surprising about five, six, seven different theological controversies the word all shows up in, and in almost no case does it mean all. It can mean all, as in in each and every one, but usually it just means many, a lot. So what he means is, is a lot of people are coming to him. All right, so we go down to verse 27 and verse 30, and we read this. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Now, why does John the Baptist say that? What man is he referring to that has received all he has from heaven? Is he referring to himself? It could be. He could be saying this, look, I got my ministry from heaven, so quit looking down on it and thinking that I'm a failure and that I'm not doing well just because Jesus has got more people. We ought to be happy he's got more disciples, but what I got came from heaven too, so you guys need to cool it. I don't think that's what John meant. I think what he's, who he's referring to here is Jesus. And what he's saying is, look, Jesus has got all these disciples. He's preaching repentance. He's preaching love God, the kingdom of God, and all that same thing I'm preaching. So guess what? He got that from heaven. And since he got that from heaven, we ought to be happy about it. And we ought not to be jealous of Jesus. So what John is going to start to do here is to rehabilitate 
maybe not rehabilitate, he's trying to, to, to point out that Jesus is greater than the forerunner. And he does it three ways. The first thing he does is he says, look at Jesus' result. That had to come from heaven. There's no way that anything like that could have happened except it came from heaven. And then in verse 28, he uses the second way. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. John himself had told his disciples, somebody greater than me is coming. In fact, if in John chapter 1, verse 20, the Gospel of John says this of John the Baptist. He, John the Baptist, confessed and did not deny but confessed, quote, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. John had told his disciples that and they already forgot it. <laughs> you know, so they already forgot it. His repetitive style, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, disemphasized. He emphasized the point to them. I am not the Christ. So don't you remember that, disciples? And then the next thing John mentions that he had told them earlier, quote, this is in verse 28, John 3, I have been sent ahead of him. Well, when he said that was in John 1, verse 27, John said this, John the Baptist said this, he who comes after me, that's Jesus, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist has already said, look, I'm the forerunner. I came before, but after me somebody's coming greater. And there he is down there. He's baptizing people and he's getting his kingdom set up. I already told you this. So why are you guys jealous? So, and then John the Baptist continues with his third way to show that his disciples are being unreasonable and proud and jealous and envious of somebody else in the ministry. He said in verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, that's the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now, we, I, we just did a wedding yesterday, as you know, and A.T. Stewart was the best man. He was the friend of the bridegroom. Can you imagine Steve walking down the aisle here and A.T. Stewart sitting here going, get off, and being angry about it? I would be stupid. Because the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, is happy for the groom. Well, what's the analogy? Jesus is the groom. He's looking for his bride. Who's the bride? Us. And John the Baptist is the best man. He's, he's taking the groom and saying, here, church, here, bride, here's the groom. Here, church, here's Jesus. So I'm happy about it. I think it's wonderful that Jesus is doing great. He says, in fact, this joy of mine has been made full. I was already happy, and now my joy is just filled up to the top. And then he says this famous saying in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Now think about this. Let's think in the future a little bit. What happened to John the Baptist in the future? Yeah, uh, Herod Antipas ruled right up here in Galilee, and Herod Antipas ruled down here, which is Perea, and he had a prison right down here called Mac. Makarus in Greek. I don't know how you say it in English. Makarus, something like that. And that, interesting, I looked on Wikipedia, they still have it there, still there. It's so kind of a bump in the desert. And if John had a window, he'd have a beautiful view of the Dead Sea, but of course he didn't. He was in, he was in prison. And he ended up down there. While Jesus is out, he's expanding his ministry. He ended up going up here to Capernaum and then doing all those miracles that we read about in the New Testament. John well, actually, he didn't go up there until John got killed, but, but he, his ministry is getting bigger and bigger, and John is in prison. So was, did John's desire that Jesus increase, that he might decrease, did it come to pass? Yeah, that's pretty decreased. In prison, get you, about to get your head chopped off. Was John unhappy about that? No. He was happy. He was, he was the bridegroom. All right, let's read now verse 31. 
Oh, let me let me back up a minute. Nope, let me not back up. That's coming up later in just a minute. Let's read verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Well, he who comes from above, who is that? That's Jesus. Right. He who is of the earth is from the earth. Who is that? Probably John the Baptist. It could mean anybody, but it's most probably John the Baptist. And he was from the earth, speaks of the earth. So John the Baptist is speaking of the earth. Now that's kind of an interesting little metaphor there. What does it mean to speak of the earth? I'm calling on Denton because he says he likes to talk so much he can't stop. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I guess from the wisdom he's gained on earth, his fallen state, his fallen nature. Being a prophet. Yeah, exactly. So he, he realizes not as much as Jesus. Right. Face, you know, yeah. To be a prophet preaching baptism or repentance, you got to deal with things. I think of earthly things like this. I just made a random list of six. Jobs, kids, politics, money, relatives, and insurance. You know, <laughs> the things you got to deal with in this life, you know. Nothing wrong with that. And you have, to, you have to deal with other people in dealing with the ordinary mundane things of life. You have to deal with them honestly and justly. And, and you, if you're a tax collector, you can't steal from the people. All of that, nothing wrong with it. But it's not the things that are above. What were the things from above that Jesus knew about because he was with the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit from eternity? He was God. What did he know about? What's, go ahead. I'll ask you. Oh, I'll add. New birth. Exactly. Eternal life. And in fact, I'm going to jump down to verse 36. John is going to finish this whole discussion with his disciples and saying, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus knows everything. He's above. He who believes in the Son is eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. So that's basically Jesus knows things about salvation, about which is the when everything is said and done, salvation is much more important than money, kids, family, politics, insurance, and all that stuff. Everything in heaven is more important than what's down here. He who comes from heaven is above all. And... What Jesus was teaching in heaven, is that more important than who has the most baptism, baptizees? Is that more important? Of course it is. What's up in heaven is much more important than the stuff we have down on earth. Now, there is a problem that Christians can get super spiritual. We can say, oh, you know, my family's not important, so I'm just going to go out and live in a monastery in a desert somewhere and just pray to God all day long. Well, that's absurd. You know, that's not what he meant. John the Baptist was not saying his ministry was no good. He was just saying, hey, it's just earthly. Compared to heavenly, it's small. So you guys quit being jealous. The greater one is here. All right, let's go to verse 32. For what he has seen and heard of that he testifies. Okay, what, is Je what has Jesus seen and heard? Let me ask somebody else. How about Robert? Let me ask Robert. Robert. What has Jesus seen and heard? Uh, the NASB... The NASB has that he capitalized. I didn't even think about that, so it's assuming. Well, that's good. That's good. Be careful. That's good. So what Jesus has seen and heard of that, Jesus testifies. What is he, he, and he comes from above. So what has he seen and heard, and what does he testifies of? Right. Everything he learned from the Father, everything he knows because he is one with the Father, which is eternal, which is forever. That's a lot of amazing spiritual stuff that nobody else can get. It can't come from anywhere. You, you can read all the philosophy in the world. You're not going to hear about this. John the Baptist didn't know about it. Now, so all of things pertaining to life and salvation, he testifies. Now, listen to what John says. No one receives his testimony. Now, think about that. 
His disciples had just finished saying, all, everybody's coming down here to get baptized. And John says, nobody's listening to him. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? The liberals right? The scripture has arrows in it? How do we explain that? I mean, I was thinking about we were talking about it. And I'm thinking of, we had mentioned the church wasn't until Pentecost and all that. And so part of it, I think, is spirit of truth that reveals all things to us hasn't been given. They can't fully receive the truth from above until the spirit and, and opens up your heart and mind. And this is before the Spirit. And think about the people that didn't believe in Jesus. I used to think, well, if I lived back then, oh, it'd be so wonderful. It'd be so easy to believe in Jesus. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. Very, very few Jews believed in Jesus, right? What were they all yelling at the end of his life? Crucify him. Yeah. How about this? Well, we have examples here. John the Baptist's disciples didn't believe in him. They said, John, what's the matter with it? You know, what, who is this guy down here baptizing so many people? They didn't even believe in him. How about John the Baptist yeah. himself? When he was in prison down here. After saying this. <laughs> after saying this, he's in prison down here, and he sends two of his disciples up to Jesus. And I don't know where Jesus was at the time, somewhere around here. He sends, sends some disciples up to Jesus and says, uh, are you the Messiah? Are you the coming one, or should we wait for somebody else? Yeah. So even he had trouble believing in him. Here's a good one. Even Jesus' own disciples and followers had trouble. John 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You know what made them turn back? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Oh, that's too heavy for me. I'm out of here. So, so... Yeah, so John the Baptist was keenly aware that people were not really accepting Jesus. He had a totally different attitude. That no one is not to be taken literally because some people did believe Jesus' testimony. John the Baptist did, temporarily at least. And the people who were being baptized by Jesus believed him. So, now, again, with the same theme of Jesus is greater than me, and I'm happy with that. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God... Because he's seen and heard from God the Father, and now he's, now he's on earth, and he's speaking those words out to the people. For he, God the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. Gives the Spirit without measure. Who gives the Spirit to whom? The Father gives the Spirit to whom? The Son, Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've heard this before. You might have heard this, Dwayne, because I know some of your past. Have you heard people say that he gives the Spirit without measure? And they refer to God giving the Holy Spirit to Christians without measure. I didn't realize until I started preparing for this lesson that that verse had been taken out of context for decades. I've been hearing that. And it's not, that's not what the verse says. It be, not that God doesn't love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Luke chapter wherever it is. Luke 11, I think. And that's true. But this verse right here, he gives the Spirit without measure. It means that God has prepared the Son with full measure. That means with nothing lacking, overflowing the Holy Spirit to do his ministry, which is eternal life, as we'll get to in the last verse, as they had mentioned earlier. All right, so let's go now to verses 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, thinking of the context, what we just read, what is it that the Father has given the Son? He said, John says, all things, that's kind of, indefinite all things all what kind of things all what things everything everything things of the spirit heavenly things things pertaining to salvation things that we need to hear and so forth he's given everything yeah everything into his hands all right now he finishes up 
He who believes in the Son has eternal life. So you see, the context tells you this is what he's given, the Father has given to the Son. Everything pertaining to, pertaining to eternal life. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now let's talk about that word eternal. Uh, what does that word eternal, Chris, I'll ask you, what does eternal mean? Yes, yes, it does let mean that. It means forever. It also has a connotation in the Greek that's not really in the English. It's not only time, it's not only a, a quantity of time, it's also a quality of life. Not only a quantity of life, but a quality of life. And think about it. Can you imagine a world, for example, where there are no fire ants? There, there, and there are no mosquitoes. You get out of bed and your joints don't ache. You don't have any family or marriage problems and you know all this garbage that we have to live with down here. It ain't there. That's eternal life means forever with no garbage. That is what Jesus was trying to tell people. And that's why there were so many people wanting to go baptized by him. They, want, they, they were hungry. We all long for this, a life with no pain and no suffering and, and the joy of knowing God. For he who does not obey the Son will not see life, John continues in verse 36. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. Now, what does that mean? Not see life. Yeah. That eternal life we're just talking about. And, and that's a polite way of saying they're hell. When you don't see life, there's, you, only, you only have two choices. You're either going to be with God or without God. If you're not with God, that's another definition of hell. The metaphors are different. Sometimes it's fire. Sometimes it's eternal darkness, which, of course, contradicts if you think about it and put it in the same sentence. But the point is, is that it's a terrible, terrible, terrible place to be separate from God forever and ever. But the wrath of God remains on him. And, of course, that's what we don't like to talk about that, you know, that cute little baby, you know, the baby's born, you know. They put a little white robe on him or her, put a little bow in her hair. I had a story one time. I had a professor at seminary, and he was asked to fill in at a, another church. And he was supposed to, he was a Presbyterian, so they did this sprinkling thing, you know. So he was supposed to baptize the, the, the baby, and the mother asked him to somehow lay a rose on the baby or carry a rose up there and give it to the baby as the baptized. And he said, why? Well, to symbolize the baby's innocence. He says, I'm not going to do that. That baby's not innocent. That baby's got the wrath of God abiding on her head. <laughs> he was a visitor. He could do that, you know. So, so, anyway, to summarize here. So John the Baptist is basically preaching the basic gospel to his disciples who didn't, who didn't realize. Now, let's make an application real quick here. Let me just ask you for some suggestions. Hi, if you had a young Christian and you were discipling them and, and they just read this and you did a Bible study with them, what kind of application would you make? How would you say, how does this apply to your life? I was thinking, this is before he goes, mm -hmm. so ministry is probably okay. He feels kind of successful in his service, but yet things are going to get really tough. And his attitude, one thing that we should focus is his attitude. You know, all, everything's I've been given anyway. And he must increase, I must decrease. So... That attitude is really powerful, you know, because I've been to think a lot of people have tried to do any side toward ministry time, and our attitude should be like John the Baptist. Hey, he's given this ministry anyway. It's his. And if I end up in prison with my head cut off, the gospel's going to go on. The elect will be brought into the kingdom. And so what are you worried about? Does God really need you? Does he? Yeah. And I'm a success just because I'm serving them. Yeah. And another thing is, what if my ministry's real small? And I, I, I feel this all the time, you know, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing anything for God. But if you're doing what God has called you to do, like John the Baptist was doing what God called him to do, if you're doing that, well, then you're the biggest success in the world. 
What kind of an attitude did John the Baptist have? Was it like his disciples? It was exactly the opposite of his disciples. Total humility. And you know, Jesus, we're not going to do it here, but in another place, in Luke, he tried to rehabilitate John the Baptist when John the Baptist sent the two disciples and said, are we supposed to look for somebody else? And then Jesus kind of kind of said some tough things, and then he started rehabilitating John. And he said, there's, not, never, there's never been a prophet in the Old Testament greater than this man. He was a great man by de- learning how to decrease and sit in prison knowing that your ministry's over and your life is about to end. It didn't matter as long as the gospel spread. I had a good friend one time. You know, I don't, all of you who ever do Christian work, have you ever experienced jealousy in the ministry or competition in the ministry? Have you ever? It's everywhere. It's human nature, really. And I remember one time I got a good friend. He was the best man at my wedding. He's my age, 67 years old. And when we were in college, he ran into an ex-Hells Angel who was hired by the Billy Graham Association. He was go- this, his name was Rick Carino, and he was going to Columbia Bible College at the time it was called. And he ran into my friend, my roommate, his name was Hunt, and Rick Carino, and my, my roommate's real outgoing type, evangelist type, and said, why don't you come with me on my ministry? And the Billy Graham Association paid for it all. My friend is my age, 20-something years old. He goes out west. It's in the middle of the Jesus movement. Remember the Jesus movement, how wonderful that was back in the late 60s? And, you know, I'd heard over the years some stories about it. I didn't think too much about it. I was talking to him on the phone the other day. He said, Dan, we went through stadiums and churches. At least 10,000 people got saved. I said, what? You never told me that before. I'm 67 years old. You never. His wife said the same thing. You never told me that. But, but I remember thinking, I, I believe that when I was younger, I would have been very jealous of my friend. But, that, but boy, the first thing I said, Hunt, that is wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. Because the bottom line is we need to get people into the kingdom. I don't care whether it's two, one, or five million. You know, we just need to get them into the kingdom and do, our, and do what God's called us to do. We're all in, in this together, Christian big shots and Christian small fry. We're all in it together. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I've returned from my splice. We have now finished John chapter 3, gone through verse 22 through 36 in this audio. And we have covered the story of John teaching his disciples that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the big one. John is the little one. Next audio, we're going to go to John chapter 4 and discuss Jesus and and the Samaritan woman. I might not finish the whole story in in the next audio, but we'll start at least. I hope you tune in for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.